are in week two of Advent, and today we're going to talk about peace. And, uh, you know, in the sort of big C global church, when I say church, I mean like all the Christians all over the world, the universal church, um, there are two kind of big buckets of traditions. There, there's more than that, but there's two big ones that we can talk about uh, that you can broadly categorize different tra- church traditions or streams into. Uh, one we would call high church. Okay, and that would be your traditions that uh, value liturgy, they value tradition, uh, they usually tend to be more centered around those things when they gather for worship. There's a more written order of service, right? We call it an order of service, they would call it a liturgy. Um, and there's a lot of beauty there and art and uh, a lot of beautiful things in the high church tradition. Um, they tend to be more contemplative, so they tend to emphasize more finding God right in the middle of normal. That you, you spend time in quiet, contemplative prayer, and that's a, a lot of what those traditions tend to value. Then there are churches like the stream that we come from as an alliance church. This is our tradition that we find ourselves, very broadly speaking, uh, what we would call low church. So low church uh, would be the kind of churches where we don't have a written liturgy. We don't have a set order of service. I make one each week. Uh, we don't uh, preach from the lectionary. That would be another form of that kind of high church Tradition. There's a lot more wiggle room to kind of do whatever you want, but that also means there's a lot more pressure to decide what you have to do. Uh, and so there's two sides to that coin. Uh, in this tradition, in our tradition, what tends to get emphasized is that you find God by stepping just outside your comfort zone. So we might um, emphasize things more like, you know, having a new experience of God. You might hear that in our sort of uh, tradition of churches. And of course, within those two buckets, there's spectrums and all kinds of different traditions as well. Both of these traditions have tons of value. There's a lot that are sort of low church. Uh, you know, even when you look around, there's not a ton of art on the walls. Not a ton, you know, we value simplicity and focus on the word. Uh, and we have a lot to offer. But there is a lot to offer, uh, from, a lot on offer from the high church tradition. Art is beautiful. Smells and sights and sounds are part of how God made us. Those are good things. And so because I am a low church kid, I grew up in the low church. This is, this is, these are my people, right? I grew up in a church very similar to this, uh, very simple, very down-to-earth folks to the point where like, I crawled under the pews one day as a baby and the pastor just picked me up and kept preaching. It was not a big deal. So that's the kind of church I come from. And because of that, I find myself attracted in some ways to some of the traditions and values of the high church that can get lost or thrown out sort of in our tradition of church. Now, um, when I was getting trained for ministry, and again, I'm saying all this, this is like pre-COVID world, okay? So the illustration I'm about to use comes from the world before COVID, and I know that that, believe me, I know that it's complicated, uh, the little piece of tradition I'm about to talk about. But when I was being trained for ministry, there were a ton of conferences and training seminars that you go to. um, And and a a lot of those trainings, one of the things that we get talk about was how to make your gatherings more uh, sort of open for the new person, right? And that's a, we want to do that. That's a very good thing. There are things uh, that we can do to make sure that the new person doesn't feel uh, ostracized or feel like they're left out, right? And there are things that we don't notice sometimes that we do that, man, really make it weird for somebody new when they're in our gathering. And so that's a good, great idea. And one of those uh, things is this time that we spend welcoming one another, the greeting time, as we would call it in low church. But in high church, they might call it by a different name. They might call it the passing of the peace, right? That's a traditional uh, uh, part of high church, most of them. And they might even say something like, 
peace be with you, and you would say, and also with you. And it's a beautiful little tradition. Uh, Sometimes we're a little too critical of those things in our sort of church, that, oh, that's just mindless. But you know what? Uh, Mindlessness sometimes comes from a good place of discipline and learning, right? There are good things that can come from that. And so in all these gatherings and seminars that I would go to, they would always kind of pick on the greeting time. You should get rid of the greeting time because if somebody's introverted, they're not going to like it and, and new people aren't going to like it. And I get that and I think that's true. And I've been in those churches, which is why I hate, hate, hate name tags, right? So, so I'm preaching to the choir to myself here, right? Because I do the same thing I'm saying is maybe not the best thing. And so the reasoning is always like it makes people uncomfortable and all that. And that's true. But in many church traditions, um, that time, again, is called passing of the peace. And I think if we actually had a grasp on what that peace is that we're supposedly passing during that time, um, we would have more appreciation for that moment. And again, the caveat is I know it's complicated in COVID right now. And we went, I don't know, months without doing that part of our service. And we brought it back. And now it's like, oh, should we keep doing it? What do we do? And there's all these questions. But if we have a better grasp of what we're actually doing when we're passing the peace, it's not just a greeting time. It's much more than that. We're saying something much deeper than just, hey, how's it going? Glad you're here. We are, we are in, in a very true sense, passing the peace between ourselves and God that did not exist before Christ's blood on our behalf. And so um, th- that moment has a lot of meaning. See, because when we hear the word peace, Well, what do you think of when you hear the word peace? Go ahead and shout out. Uh, And those of you watching online, listen close. We do have a mic. It'll pick them up. What do you think of when you hear the word peace? Okay, calm. Good. What else? Joy. Joy. Okay, what else? Water. Okay, like still water. Okay, okay, gotcha. What else? What else? Peace. There's peace. What does that mean? Okay, many times we think of ways that peace is a lack of chaos or a lack of conflict, right? That's kind of the way we understand peace. And that's true, but it's not the fullness of what we're getting at when we talk about the peace of God. It's not just that we're not in conflict with one another. It's that we're in a family now, that there's something else going on. So when we say peace be with you and they say, and also with you, understand that those two people saying that used to be enemies, with one another and with God, and now they are reconciled. And so we need to use God's definition of peace. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Uh, I'm going to read a bunch of different texts. You can try to follow me around if you want. But if you've been in this church for more than like six weeks, you know that I talk really fast, and I'm going to keep moving. And so you can do your best to stay with me, but I make no promises. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. That's what Opie read for us earlier. But let me read it to you again, and we're going to think through some ideas. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, you read a text like that, and I know we have been trained and trained to train that we shouldn't talk about politics in church, but that's a very political paragraph. That there is coming a king whose government 
will have no end. Now, it's a different kind of politics. It's not the partisan politics that we are so used to, which I agree shouldn't be part of what we do. But to say that our Christian faith has no political essence to it is not true. We do believe that there is coming a kingdom and a rule and a government that will be established that centered on is peace. That peace is at the center of this kingdom. And so as we begin, what I want to do is make sure that you understand that while that text that we just read is talking about Jesus, and we always read it at Christmas time, and we're like, this is about Jesus, and it is, it's also not about Jesus. We have to understand that this is talking in the present time when this is written, not about Jesus, but ultimately all of it is. And so let me explain. Isaiah is a prophet. Now we can think of a prophet uh, kind of falsely as someone who like future tells, And sometimes that is part of what the prophets in the Old Testament do. But really, a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God on behalf of God to the people of God. So there's a sense in which when someone stands up and does what I'm doing right now or reads a text, that is a prophetic moment. Now, I'm not an Old Testament prophet, because if I start predicting the future and I'm wrong, you should take me out and stone me. Right? So that's not me. That's not what I am. But there is a prophetic sense in which what we're doing here is speaking God's word to God's people. And so Isaiah is a prophet, and his ministry is to speak God's word on his behalf for, uh, to God's people. But let's set the context of this ministry because it'll help you with this text. So before this time, we're going to do a quick history of Israel, right? The people of Israel are living as slaves in Egypt, and, and how they got there is a whole other story. I, I actually want to do a series on Joseph and his story. It's a beautiful story. Uh, but God sends plagues then to Egypt, and that ends with what's, what's now known as Passover. The Israelites escaped Egypt through the Red Sea, right? You remember the Cecil B. DeMille movie where um, Charlton Heston like, splits the Red Sea, and that whole, that's just me. All right, um, I watched those VHS tapes a lot when I was young. Uh, they then wander around, I know VHS, what's that? They wander around the desert then for 40 years, right? So, so if you know your history of Israel, that's where they get. Then they get the promised land. God knocks down the walls of a city called Jericho. They establish this big kingdom of all 12 tribes. And the Israelites get discontent, as we tend to do with God. And they start saying, God, we want to be like everybody else. And God is like, that's not a good idea. And they're like, we want a king. And he's like, that's a bad idea. But then he relents. He gives them kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And soon after King Solomon, a civil war breaks out. Israel becomes two nations, Israel to the north of 10 tribes, Judah to the south of two tribes. They have two different kings. And after this, the Assyrians and the Egyptians begin attacking. And so Isaiah is a prophet who's speaking to Judah, which is the two tribes in the south. And he holds this position for 50 years. 50 years, he speaks God's word to five different kings and uh, the people there in Judah. And so in our text, he's talking to the second of those five kings. He's speaking to King Ahaz, King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was 20 when he became king. That's crazy. And he, right, you're 20 years old and you have the power of a king. That's nuts. And he ruled for 16 years, which is for me crazy because that's how old I am. I'm 36 now, so that would be... that. That career is over. That's kind of crazy. And so uh, this is King Ahaz. Uh, He's a bad king, right? He basically said, I don't need God. I can do this king thing on my own. I I don't need him. Not a lot of wisdom. And and so Isaiah has been pleading with him. 
Repent. Now's the time to repent. That's a lot of what Isaiah has been saying. And the people, in fact, repent, but Ahaz doesn't repent. He refuses. He hardens his heart. And so Isaiah starts telling them about a future time when things are going to be better. He starts prophesying that things are going to be better. In chapter 7, verse 14, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in our text in chapter 9, we start to learn about who is this child that's going to be born. His names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you have it in your Bible and you look at it, those names are capitalized. Those are titles for him. And so it says in that text that this king's rule will go on forever and his peace will expand forever. So remember the context of this statement. Much of this does come true with the birth of Hezekiah. That's the king after the bad king Ahaz. Now, Hezekiah wasn't born from a virgin. Hezekiah grows up, becomes king of Judah, uh, Israel. The northern tribes then attack them. And then Assyria begins to attack Israel. And then there's peace for a while, basically because Israel was distracted from attacking Judah. And so the reason we mention all this is that we want to understand that the people who originally heard this prophecy didn't understand it as clearly as we do today. So one of my professors in Bible college always used to say, it's like when you're driving up to a mountain range and you can see the first peak and you think, oh, there's a mountain there. And then you get to the top of the first peak and it's like the ending of that one Lord of the Rings movie where he gets to the top and there's like a whole other mountain range that he didn't know about before. I don't remember which one that is. But the second one, okay. So I remember sitting in the theater and being like, oh, right? It was a great movie. That's how it is, Old Testament to New Testament. The Old Testament people saw that one mountain and thought, that's it. And, and as history moved along and we got to the peak of that mountain, we saw a whole other range, a whole other uh, history that was coming. And so they would have seen this as referring to Hezekiah, but they would also have understood that, that this stuff is going to be beyond any king's ability. So, so they, there was a mystery to them. And so today, what we have is the benefit that people in that time, that time did not have. So the New Testament is like a pair of glasses that we can put on that help us see things we missed with our bare eyes. So when we read the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of the life of Jesus and the New Testament, and because that's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. That all of it was pointing to him and all of the New Testament points back to him. After his resurrection, uh, Jesus was walking with the disciples. He said to them in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets like Isaiah have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Isaiah, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's saying everything is ultimately pointing to Jesus. So he's saying that texts like this Isaiah passage are ultimately about him. So while it is partially about King Hezekiah, it's not fulfilled in King Hezekiah. For instance, the text says that this kingdom and peace will never end. And we know that that's not true with Hezekiah. He died and Manasseh, his son, was evil. So, so what do we do with that? This prophecy isn't fulfilled until the life of Jesus. 
14 times in the book of Matthew, the author says that Jesus is fulfilling something from the prophets. So to fulfill, uh, our English word actually, if you break it down by its sounds, does a pretty good job of explaining what that word means. It, It means to take what's kind of half full and fill it all the way up to the brim, to top off that prophecy, if you will. It's about completion. So what Isaiah prophesied in our text is made partially complete in King Hezekiah, that that peace was coming but it was made fully and complete only in Jesus Christ. And even the peace that Jesus Christ brought in his earthly life is not yet at full completion, which is why Advent is about looking for the arrival of the coming Jesus. So let's consider then how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, and particularly then how he brings this never-ending peace that's promised in these verses from Isaiah and all over the place. As humans, when we're born, we're not born at peace with God. And I know that's hard to grasp, right? We see little babies, we're like, surely they're innocent. But the scriptures are going to tell us something different, that we're born sinful and selfish. And if you don't believe me, just hang around this little innocent one for another six months. And you're going to find out she got some stuff in there. We're not born at peace with God and really not even peace with one another. When I was in student ministry, the joke was that if, you know, if babies in the nursery were full-size adult bodies, they would like murder people to get their milk. That's how selfish they are. We're born sinful and selfish, so we're not born into peace with God. Romans 8 speaks of our being hostile towards God. Listen to these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amazing good news. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, which implies that you were under the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, Romans 5 then speaks about how God reconciled us, which means there was enmity between us and God that needed to be reconciled. And he did that through the gospel while we were still his enemies. He didn't wait for us to get it together and come to him. He did it while we were still enemies. Here's what it says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And here's the verse that should get to you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You might die for somebody who's really good. 
Perhaps for a, for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in that while we were still rebelling openly against him, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have received peace where there was not peace. One of the accusations that gets made against some of the prophets, bad prophets in the Old Testament, is that they say to God's people, peace, peace, when there is not peace. And the reality is that we are not born into peace with God. We must be reconciled by the blood of Jesus. Being an enemy of God is the exact opposite of being at peace with God. And the thing is, we treat sin so lightly. I hear it too. We we treat sin like it's not that big of a deal. But sin is a big deal. So big that God in his sovereignty decided that the way to deal with it, the only way to deal with this was to shed the blood of his own son. What we learn in the scriptures is that all people are either children of God or enemies of God. Not everybody is a child of God. There are children of God by faith. And to be an enemy of God is not a good thing. We are enemies of God from birth. We have sinned against God and he is inescapable. That's what the scriptures teach us. But we need hope. We need peace. We want peace. We, can, we were made for that. And so the only hope we have is to be made no longer an enemy of God. That's the significance of the advent of Jesus. That's why we light candles and we sing songs about the coming of Jesus. He comes to bring peace. He comes to bring peace, but he does it by his blood. Ultimately, peace between sinful men, women, and children and our creator, but also peace between those men, women, and children who are now family, and also peace between us and the creation that groans for the day when he will make all things new. And so what Jesus coming accomplishes for his people is real and lasting peace. Real, not just lack of conflict, but full reconciliation back into friends. I don't know if you've ever had a relationship that had a, like a break in it that you reconciled. You had a big blowout fight with somebody and you got to real reconciliation. What's crazy is that most of the time those kind of relationships are stronger on the other side of that than they were even beforehand. I've experienced it a couple times. It's incredibly difficult. The cost is incredibly high. And this on an, on an eternal scale is what Christ has done for us. I want you to hear this from Ephesians 2, 13 to 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Insert your name there. You were once far off. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. Who's the ones that are far off? Those are not Jews in this text. For us, we might think of those as people who are off doing whatever they want to do. But he also brought in those who were near, 
those who go to Sunday school every week and follow all the rules and do all the religious stuff for the sake of gaining God's favor. He just said he abolished the law that would make ordinances the way you get to God. The only way you get peace with God is through Jesus. So we're born at war with God. Some of us wage war with God by saying, forget you, God, I don't want you. And some of us wage war with God by saying, God, I'll manipulate you by doing this religious thing. But both of us are trying to wage war with God, not peace. And so not only does God make peace possible through Jesus, but he actually accomplishes the peace for us. Through the gift of faith in Christ, we have peace with God. That's the prophecy in our text from Isaiah today, and that's the message we see clearly in Romans 5, verse 1, which says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we have peace with God, who was our enemy. Now, if you don't have peace with God today, what this means is that you actually can have peace with God. That's what this message, that's what Christmas, that's what Advent is all about. You can be made no longer an enemy of God. You can say that God is my friend because of what Christ has done. And also, if your faith is in Christ, you are right now no longer an enemy of God. So if, if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you just feel like God is distant, you need to be reminded, I'm no longer an enemy of God. I haven't been for a long time. And we let the reality of that sink in for us. Now, I just want to, I want to open a door for us that maybe there's a few of us listening, maybe even online, you need this door to be opened. You need someone to start this conversation. I still, I struggle with not feeling at peace. That's a struggle for, I'm talking personally for me. And to really open this door, right, I'm struggling. I just had this conversation early this morning with uh, someone that I was driving to the airport. I struggled. I am struggling more this year than other years that I can remember to feel the peace that I'm preaching about. Like this year, I can feel in myself an anxiousness, a worry, what's going to happen? Are we going to go in lockdown again? What's going on with everything? I lost a father-in-law this year, I feel that. And so I, I just want to open that door to you to say, I feel restless in my soul. I don't feel at peace. And the usual Christmas coziness and lights and all that stuff, they're not working like they usually do this year. I, I feel that. And maybe you feel that. And I want to say that as your, I want to say that as your pastor because I know that some of us are probably feeling that as well. Some of you are nodding and you don't even probably realize that you're nodding at me. And so I just want to say to you that you're not alone in that and that God hasn't gone anywhere. But I feel that too. I'm not immune from that. This year, more than any other Christmas, I can just feel myself when it gets dark outside. I'm like, eh, I'm just going to go to bed. And I don't feel that peace that I want to feel. But in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is listed. And I'm going to preach to myself now along with you. These are characteristics that we begin to bear as a result of the Holy Spirit of Jesus dwelling in us. Here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And I, I want to catch that third one. Peace. We have 
peace, and we can grow in these areas of, as well. That's part of sanctification, that we grow in them. And, and, and God didn't, never promised us that growth in the fruit of the Spirit was going to be this linear, perfect thing where every year I'm a little bit... Now, gr- growth in the Holy Spirit is, is like a, the, the earthquake lines that you see on those machines on a Richter scale. When I was a little boy, I lived in California, and we used to see those all the time. Oh, there was a tremor today, and the line is like this, right? That's like our discipleship in Christ. And, and hopefully over time it does go up, but there's years when it dips, and you just feel like, I, I don't feel the peace. So let me just suggest to continue to come back to God this Advent season. Continue to pursue greater peace by being with Jesus. In Philippians 4, the Bible instructs us to bring to God whatever is in our lives that's creating anxiety. So do that. Let this just be a reminder to you. I know you know that text, but I'm reminding you anyway. Bring those things to God that you are carrying and dealing with. Let him, let him hear those because he cares for you. Listen, you were born an enemy of God, but at the coming of Jesus and at the coming of his life and his death and his resurrection, all of which is received through faith, you have been made children of God. So now when you go to God in prayer, you can say anything you want to him because he's adopted you into the family and nobody can take that from you. You can't undo adoption. When you go to God in prayer, speak to him like the loving, caring, powerful father that you have because that's who he is to you now. And so the result of this, the result of our going to God as children, like we learn in Philippians, is that the peace of God that surpasses understanding comes to you. But I want you to hear that it doesn't mean that immediately all of that stuff is going to go away. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to feel like this magical, oh, I feel euphoria. No, it just means that the peace of God is with you even in the midst of that hard stuff. And so the text we read from Isaiah today is speaking prophetically of Jesus, calls him the Prince of Peace. And what that means is that Jesus offers us rest in a world that is really, really this time of year uh, where we really feel unrest. Like it is possible for you to have something to do every night of the week from now till the end of the year if you want to. And some of us will try that to escape. And then we're going to get to January and all the stuff that we were anxious about is still going to be there. But the peace that Jesus gives is a different kind of peace. It's going to last for eternity. It's the basis of all the other peace in our lives. Uh, We're able to forgive others of the sins they have sinned against us because we've been forgiven of greater sin and therefore we're at peace. We have peace with others because we dwell in peace with God. This is why we symbolize this when we pass the peace to one another. It's a reminder week after week after week over the lifetime of coming on Sundays to church that you have peace with God and with one another. And some weeks you need to be reminded. And so let me just close with a reminder. With peace comes rest, right? the ultimate rest in Jesus. But often this time is a time of unrest. And so it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, I've got little kids in the house. It's so hard to not buy into them. I got to get them this present and that present. I got to buy 18 toys that by January 6th are going to be trash. It's depressing because we think about, we've been programmed by our society, by our consumerist society to think about the things we don't have. 
This is a conversation I constantly have with my six-year-old. Why are you thinking of the one thing you don't have when you have 1,800 toys? Well, that's because she's being discipled by the same things that I'm being discipled by, which is that you just need a little bit more. You just need a little bit more materially, relationally, whatever it is that we lack, we focus on that. And the marketers this time of year know this and they prey on that. They appeal to our unrest. They appeal to our lack of satisfaction, our lack of contentment, lack of peace in our lives. What do you think sales are about? Ooh, this thing is on sale. This thing you didn't need before that you still kind of don't need, but you're going to buy anyway to make yourself feel better. And again, I'm not anti-stuff, you guys that know me know that, but we're easily convinced that if we get this product or have this subscription to that service, then that thing in us that's causing us unrest will go away. But I just want to remind us, plead with us, let's not take that bait. It's not working for us. You have to preach to yourself in these moments, in the coming weeks, that even if you fail that class, lose that job, lose someone in your life, that you are at peace with God. You can rest in that truth. Even if the future doesn't go as you desire, you're at peace with God. You can rest in the knowledge that the God of the universe, who is your creator, has made peace for you through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. That that he's accomplished all the stuff that you feel that angst to accomplish. He's made you right with himself. So take a deep breath. Exhale. And remember that you're at peace with God. Feel the weight of that lifted off of your shoulders because it was already placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And you can rejoice in the peace that has come at the advent of Jesus. Let me pray, but before I pray, I just want to say, um, if what I said earlier about feeling unrest and, and anxious is something that kind of made you think, yeah, that's me, and you want to pray together, I'm going to be up here after the service is over, uh, and I would love to pray with you about that, and you can pray for me about that as well. Uh, We can pray together. But let me close this moment now by praying. Jesus, we thank you that you are our life and our peace. You, You are not simply the path to those things, but you are in yourself our peace. So I pray, Father, this week as we uh, think about last week, our hope in you, and this week, the peace that you've purchased for us, that that would then lead us into next week where we focus on joy and ultimately the love that we have as we have been brought into the family of God, made sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. And Jesus, we thank you that you're the one that did all the work that was necessary to bring that about. I ask that we would continue in our belief that you would grant us peace this week, the, the, the knowledge that we've been made at peace with you so that we can live as those who are at peace and not as those who are uh, in a state of hurry and unrest and, and frenetic life, that we can be different kind of people and through that we can be a witness to the kingdom that's coming when you come and when your peace will have no end. We pray this in your name. Amen.